All right, John 8, 48 to 59. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Thanks, Casey. Morning, everybody. Uh, Plenty happening around the place today. It's great to be celebrating Mother's Day, to be farewelling hope, um, to be anticipating that we'll have some news next week about our pastoral search. Um, It's all, you know, all wonderful. And then there's all kinds of things, I think, going on in all of our own lives as well. So maybe let's just take a moment to pray um, as we come to God's Word. King Jesus, we do thank you that you are active and at work in so many different ways in in our lives, in our community, in our church uh, and in our world. And we do acknowledge your goodness to us as we've sung about already this morning, uh, your faithfulness to us and the way that you are at work to provide for us. Uh, We look forward to seeing what you have for us in the next season as a church family uh, for Hope and their next season. Uh, We give you thanks particularly today for... Uh, our mothers and those who have been uh, spiritual mothers to us and aunties and those who have, those women in our lives who have have mentored and encouraged us, those that we um, know and love, those that we miss, those that we have uh, difficult relationships with, we trust them all to you. And for the things that are on our own hearts, God, the um, all kinds of things that have been going on in our lives this week, uh, for all that is going on in the world um, that concerns us, we thank you that you hold it all in your hands. And King Jesus, we want to hear your voice speak into all of it. We pray as we sit in your word together this morning, as we sit in the gospel over the next few weeks, that you would speak your word in a way that encourages us, um, that lifts our eyes to you, King Jesus, that teaches and equips us and that sends us out um, with a renewed sense of who you are and what you are doing in and through us and around us. So we ask you to be at work speaking through us now, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting a new series today. Uh, Over the next eight weeks, we're going to be sitting in the Gospel of John. And um, I've been praying over the last couple of weeks as we think about entering into this series, um, planning 
preaching series is kind of an interesting thing. Like we sit down and usually once a year and we look at, or every six months, look at kind of what is it that we, um, we, we think God might be saying or what parts of the Bible do we think it's worth us looking at or where haven't we looked for a while? But there's, there's also this real element of trust that God will, you know, use it for His purposes. And when I look back over the last few years, certainly my time here at Richmond, just always amazed at the timeliness of, of what um, we're looking at in God's Word and how it always speaks into where we find ourselves right now. I think particularly uh, two years ago, we'd planned a series on Jeremiah way back before COVID was even a word that we'd heard of. And it ended up being this series that we did while we were online. And it just felt so much like, you know, an invitation from God to hope and to lament and to understanding in that particular season. Uh, and then we did Deuteronomy, I think, while we were at the school. Um, again, and you think, oh, it's just a, a book of the Bible that God, you know, spoke to His people many, many years ago. And it just felt so timely for where we were at on our journey as a church at that moment. And so I guess that's been my prayer that as we, and we head into John and we look at um, what Jesus has to say about Himself, um, which is a wonderful topic at any time, but particularly that it might be God's Word for us as a Richmond family in this season. So we're going to be spending the next eight weeks in John's Gospel, uh, which you may know is quite different to the other three Gospels. Uh, Anyone who's been around here for a while might have heard this story before, but I reckon about seven or eight years ago, we were talking about John's Gospel and I made an off-the-cuff comment that John is a bit fluffy and I've never lived it down. It's been like said at Bible college where I've taught, it's been named at work and, and it's, it's really not a fair comment to make. But what I was trying to express is that John's Gospel is different to the other three. The other three Gospels seem very grounded and kind of the story unfolds very clearly of um, of what Jesus does and what he says. And it's, it's very much like reading a biography, like reading about someone's life. John's Gospel is much more conceptual. It's much more kind of abstract. He uses these same key words over and over again. It's much more kind of structured and planned. It's not like he's just telling you someone's life story. It's like he's got a slightly different purpose to the other three Gospels, which probably makes sense because John was aware that there were three Gospels already written by Matthew, Mark and Luke. And he comes to tell the story of Jesus with a different goal in mind. In fact, he tells us, Right towards the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, I have written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing that you might have life. John is upfront about his goal, which is that we might understand who Jesus is and not as a passive exercise, not that we just kind of wrap our minds around it, but that in so doing, we might enter into his life. And so John tells the story of Jesus in a way that really is blatantly upfront and clear about who Jesus is. There's no questions. There's no um, kind of secret or there's no misunderstanding. John is very, very clear about who Jesus is because he tells the story in light of the end. He knows because of the resurrection that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the promised one. And as I think about this week, it's, it's almost like, John doesn't actually say this, but I wonder if it's almost like John is saying, you know what, we didn't quite get it before. When we were walking around with Jesus for those three years, we didn't really understand. You know, you read Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, sorry, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and you see the disciples just kind of going, I don't know, what's this all about? And they didn't quite understand it. John is now as an old man looking back and going, I see it now. I see it so clearly who Jesus is. And I'm going to write in a way that you see it so clearly as well. I want to show you the truth that was there all along of who Jesus is. We just didn't realise it until we look back on it. 
And so John shapes his gospel around seven key statements and seven key signs. I told you it was much more structured than the others. It's not just how the story unfolds. He moves things around in a different order because there's this whole structure. There are seven things that Jesus did and seven things that Jesus said that really shape together who He is so that we might know and in knowing have life. Now, the seven signs, as, Jesus, as John calls them, are those kind of seven miracles that Jesus does. We're not going to look at those. In this series, we're going to look at the seven things that Jesus says about Himself, or what are often known as the I am statements, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate I am the shepherd, the good shepherd for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the vine. And you could just hear those as kind of nice images and metaphors as if Jesus was saying like, so I'm kind of like this vine, you know, because you grow and I I help. But the claim is something so much bigger than that. These are not mere images or metaphors. These are Jesus' claims all founded in the Old Testament Scriptures that reveal that He is the same as the God of the Old Testament. And so over the next seven weeks, we're gonna see how each of these statements links back to a revelation of God Himself and how Jesus, by taking on these images, is claiming that He Himself is God. But even more more than that, the way that He says it, the use of this phrase, I am, why these statements are so obvious in John's mind, the clearest way he can communicate to us who Jesus is, is the importance of those two little words, I am. And so we start this morning with perhaps the most radical story of all. In John chapter eight, when Jesus doesn't say, I am the vine, I am the gate, I am the light, he simply says, I am. And you might read that, verse in isolation and think, gee, Jesus has got really bad grammar. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. Or you might read it as John has designed the story to be told and see that the people who heard it immediately go to pick up stones to try and kill him because this is blasphemy. Jesus is claiming to be God. These are not mere images, small claims. Jesus is revealing that he, his identity, he is claiming to have pre-existed Abraham for starters, who died, you know, about 2,000 years ago when they're talking, maybe 4,000 years ago now. He's saying, I was around before him. He is claiming to be outside time, eternal, and he is identifying himself with the God who has revealed himself through the pages of the Old Testament. So to understand how big a claim this is and why they might pick up stones to stone him, let's go back to Exodus and the moment when God first revealed this name, I am. We say that names are pretty important things. I don't know if you're a person who's grown up loving your name or wishing that you had a different name or wanting to say to your parents, why did you call me by that name? But your name is powerful. It identifies you, it distinguishes you. When someone remembers your name, when you meet someone and then you see them again and they remember your name, it's powerful. It says something about them valuing you and honouring you and wanting to enter into relationship with you. Those of you who are parents, I'm, I'm sure many of you have agonised over what to call your children, thought through all the possibilities, taking on the responsibility of giving someone a name. A few years ago, uh, when I was leaving Israel, I was at the airport and I handed over my passport 
And the guy, the customs officer looked at my name and he said, why is this your name? It's <laughs> like, that's an existential question to be asked at 7am on an airport security search. Why is this your name? Uh, and it was, it's actually interesting to have people from Hope here today because my answer was, because my parents gave it to me, <laughs> why did they give you this name? Because they liked it. Because <laughs> I'm a typical Australian whose parents thought about, you know, what they thought was a pretty sounding name. Uh, in the cultural context I was coming from, they thought it was so much more significant. What I realised, what I learnt, is that my middle name uh, is actually the name of a Palestinian town, Janine. Uh, and they were thinking that I was connected to this community and this family because of my name. And <laughs> I was about to get in trouble because they thought I was someone. Um, so my name had this depth of meaning. It's connected to relationship with others, to history, to events, to character. And that's the, the culture and the context of the Bible, that names in the Bible have so much significance and importance. It's worth paying attention when we're given someone's name in the Bible to the backstory and the footnotes and the meaning because there's always so much weight that's carried by someone's name. Your name is one of your most precious gifts and sharing your name with someone else is an invitation to relationship. I wonder if we miss the significance of that fact because maybe names aren't so meaningful in our context and maybe like me, your name just happens to be one your parents thought sounded good. <laughs> but the first thing that we can say about our God is that he has a name. Our God has a name. Now, God is, is what He is, right? I'm a human being, He's God. <laughs> That's kind of his, his, uh, his being, His nature, the kind of entity, if I can put it that way, that He is. But our God has a name and He reveals that name to us. That says that He is knowable. That says that He is relational. That says that He condescends to make Himself available to us. I don't know if you've ever stopped to marvel at the wonder of a God who would tell you his name. I've always been struck by this. The first theology class I ever took at Bible College with a lecturer by the name of Ray Laird, it was the first thing he taught us in that theology class was God has a name. That's the first thing you need to know. Wow, I thought we'd start with these big abstract concepts of God being omniscient and omnipotent and eternal. And I said, you need to know that God has a name because if God had not revealed his name, you wouldn't be able to know him and all the other thoughts would just be abstract ideas. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses meets God in a burning bush on a mountainside and he says to him, suppose I go to your people and I say that our God, the God of our fathers has sent me to you and they say, well, who is he? What is his name? What shall I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. That is my name. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am, has sent you to me. God reveals his name so that it can be known, so that it can be spoken by generations, so that you will know me, he says. Now there's kind of these fascinating quirks of history in the Old Testament and how the people of Israel deal with this because uh, not long after that story, later in Exodus, God gives the people the Ten Commandments, His law, where He uh, you know, invites them to live out this relationship in practice um, by being obedient and by reflecting the kind of God that He is. And so He tells them to value life and to be faithful and to not steal and covet and all those things. But one of the commandments He give them, gives them is to not take His name in vain. 
Now, to me, that says that God wants them to honour His name, right? God wants them to recognise how precious and special it is that He's revealed His name to them. And He doesn't want them to take that for granted or abuse it or use it, you know, in vain. What ends up happening over the Old Testament period is they get really worried that they might accidentally break that commandment. And so they decide, let's just not say His name at all, because then we won't be at risk of breaking the commandment. And so they begin to not say God's name and becomes known as the unpronounceable name of God. And I kind of understand where they're coming from. And yet there's something really powerful that uh, has, has been perhaps lost in what happens, that God's name becomes unknown. God's name, I am, is a name that speaks of his existence and his being. A little bit of um, nerdy Bible college uh, theory for you. So the name that God speaks to Moses here is a form of the Hebrew verb to be. So, you know, the verb to be, like I am, you are, he was, she will be. There's all these kind of different ways that you can apply that verb, but it's the verb of existence, that that I am, that you are, that we are either doing something or just being. But it's not a known form of the verb. So like there is a Hebrew word for he is, he was, he will be. There's a Hebrew word for I am, I will be, I was. And th- you know, this word is kind of related to that and yet it's a unique form of that verb. This is why it's translated here as, you know, I am who I am or I am that I am. It is speaking of God's existence, being, eternity, and yet it is also his personal name. And so it gets represented in Hebrew by four consonants, Y-H-W-H, known as the tetragrammaton. Uh, And because the Jews didn't want to mistakenly pronounce that wrong, they would not pronounce it. And so there's no vowels that go with that. So you try and say Y-H-W-H without any vowels and you end up with a pretty breathy, um, you know, difficult to say word. (laughs) And so we tend to, uh, in English, say Yahweh. We put in the vowels. Um, we follow the tradition uh, of the New Testament, which translates that word, those four consonants, Y-H-W-H, as Lord, but puts them in all capital letters. And so we do that in our English Bibles. So every time you're reading the Bible and you see the word Lord and it's in four capital letters, that's those four consonants, Y-H-W-H. That's the personal name of God. The name that God has revealed so that we might know Him so that we might be in relationship with Him. The name that speaks of His very being, His presence and His existence. And so I gave the Jews of the Old Testament a hard time for what they did with God's name, but I wonder what we've done with God's name. Because when we turn it into the word Lord and we read it all throughout the Bibles and we say it and we hear it and it becomes very, very familiar to us, which is wonderful, do we lose some of the weightiness of the fact that God has shared his name with us? Um, I hesitate to say this because I really don't want to sound judgmental about people's prayers, but do you ever heard people pray and the word Lord almost becomes like a filler? You know, I mean, like a gap word. It's like, while I'm hesitating as to what to pray for, I'll just throw in a few Lords because it keeps the flow going. <laughs> And I'm not trying to suggest that that's, you know, this evil breaking of the fourth commandment by taking the Lord's name in vain. But I do wonder where the invitation might be to pause and to acknowledge that we are speaking to the eternally existent divine creator of the universe who has deigned to share with us his name and how that might shape the way that we pray the way that we connect with Him, the way that we worship Him.
marvel at what it says about our God, that He would reveal His name. And so then, yes, we finally get back to John. (laughs) Jesus is talking to people about who He is. They're questioning Him. They're saying, you know, how can you drive out demons? Are you not evil and a demon yourself? And He makes this statement. Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is taking to Himself all that it means that God has a name that God is knowable, that God is relational, that God invites us to connect with Him. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, God doesn't just have a name, God now has a person, (laughs) me. Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh. Now, I hope this is not news to any of you. That's kind of the whole basis of Christianity, right? That's why we exist as a church. It's kind of the core doctrine that we believe is that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God in the flesh, the incarnation we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus is God who has come to us. What's our reaction and our response to that? Because the Jews pick up stones immediately to get rid of him. You can't walk around claiming to be God. (laughs) Who do you think you are, they say to him. And I think that question the kind of the radicalness of that question, who do you think you are, has to remain with us as we enter into John's Gospel and what this story might have to say to us individually and as a church in this season. Jesus isn't just a nice guy who models some good ways of being or who teaches some good stories, who gives some good piece of, pieces of advice. His claim is a claim to divinity, to authority, to allegiance. It's a claim that should provoke strong reactions. People saying, no, thank you. I want to get rid of you. I want nothing to do with you. Or people saying, I fall down on my knees before you and acknowledge and honour that you are. One of the things over the years here at Richmond uh, we've often encouraged, we've often talked about for a while is reading the Bible with other people, finding someone else in the church to just meet together with and read the Bible. And um, we haven't been so faithful recently, but I've been reading the Bible with Lauren for, I reckon, around about six or seven years. And when we first started, we used to read, we were reading through the Gospels and we used to meet um, in Victoria Square in the city. And so we'd meet outside in the square and we'd just read the Gospel, we'd read the story of Jesus. And it was a really confronting experience because we'd often be meeting around, you know, five o'clock, people are leaving work, the city's really bustling and busy and all these people are walking past us and we're reading this book and we're like, if these people knew what we were reading and that we actually believe this, this is what we actually believe, that this man, Jesus Christ, is God and that He makes a claim on our lives and that He makes a claim on the whole world that is the biggest claim anyone could ever make that upends and changes everything about who we are and how we live and what we do. If they knew, if they only knew, how would they react? How would they respond? I'm challenged by the idea that in our culture, Christianity is often seen, well, it's seen in a few different ways, isn't it? But it's often seen as quite kind of nice. Oh, that's nice for you. You have your little beliefs. You go and do your little church thing on Sunday. That's fine. That's what... And... We haven't 
fully communicated how radical what we believe is, how upending, how challenging to the structures and systems and powers of our world. If Jesus stands before us and says, I am, what difference does that make for me today? What difference does that make for us this week? What difference does that make for our world? Jesus, I am the eternally existent one, the all-knowing one, the one who invites us into the very life of God. Jesus, the I am, the ever-present one. There was never a time when He was not, which means there is never a time in our lives when He is not. Jesus, the I am, the faithfully consistent one who is always the same in His character and His love and His faithfulness to us, who does not change with the seasons, but remains always, ever, only who He is. Jesus, the I am, the Lord and ruler of the entire universe who sits on the throne at whose name every knee should bow and every tongue confess who He is. As we enter into this series and we are going to get much more grounded over the next few weeks as we look at these kind of much more practical images of Jesus being the light and how that might, you know, shine truth for us, of Jesus being the bread that we might feed on and find nourishment, of Jesus being the path that we can follow. I guess it, I hope it gets, you know, much more practical and much more, you know, able to be lived out in, in the, the day-to-day realities of our lives. But we start with this really big frame, with this really big claim. I am, Jesus says. It's an invitation to wonder, an invitation to worship. But even more than that, it's an invitation to respond to the offer of God to know Him, to be known by Him, and in knowing Him to participate in the eternal, ongoing life of God. I feel like I've run out of words (laughs) in trying to talk about this, because how do you explain in everyday English language (laughs) the immensity of this claim of Jesus to be I am. How do you begin to articulate the fullness of what it means to be God? All I can do is put those words of Jesus before us, hold them, look at them, wonder at them, be amazed by them, be challenged by them, be drawn to consider what it means to respond. If Jesus is, I am. If Jesus is always, I am. Who are we? How do we respond? Let me pray.
King Jesus. We give you that name, that title, because it reminds us of how great you are and of your claim on our lives. We owe you our allegiance, our everything. Lord Jesus, ruler, creator of the universe. We want to give you that name, not as a passing title, but as a way of acknowledging and entering into the fullness of who you have revealed yourself to be. God, Jesus. God in the flesh. God made known not just by a name, but as one of us. We give you that name. Despite the limitations of our brains and our language to understand or even articulate it. Because we are here and we exist as your people, as your church, as your followers, because of that foundational truth that you are our God. Jesus, I pray that you would give us space in our own lives to wonder, to worship, to just acknowledge and be amazed that you are. And I pray for us as a church community, as we sit with that, as we unpack the fullness of that, as as we grab hold of these kind of more concrete images that you give us so that we might land that in the grounded realities of our day-to-day lives. Would you teach us, encourage us, challenge us, rebuke us, draw us back again and again to a posture of worship, submission, obedience, love and response. We thank you for these words that have been written that we might know you and in knowing you that we might have life in you. Amen.